Today on Your Money, Your Wealth, Joe Anderson, CFP, Big Al Clopine, CPA, and Pure Financial Advisors Executive Vice President and Director of Research, Brian Perry, CFP, CFA, are dedicating the entire episode to answering your money questions. And they run the gamut. We're talking about using indexed universal life insurance, IULs, to insure future income, buying mutual funds or ETFs in an IRA, Roth contributions and conversions, changes to the thrift savings plan, doing a reverse mortgage leading into possible recession, the mega backdoor Roth strategy, what happens to retirement accounts in a divorce, and a lot more. Pew! If you've got a money question of your own, go to yourmoneyyourwealth.com, scroll down and click Ask Joe and Al on air. I'm producer Andy Last, and there will be no screwing around here today. Let's get straight to it. G, Los Angeles, LA. G, that's the name? What up, G? (laughs) What up? (laughs) Hi, Joe, Big Al, and Andy. Joe, I see more and more financial advisors are suggesting index universal life insurance, IULs, as a way to insure income in future. Matter of fact, two advisors that I spoke with, they own IULs. Go figure. So why is most CFPs say buy term and invest the rest? If you like IULs, uh, which company do you like and what index to tie to? Thanks. Uh, G. Um, yeah, I don't like IULs. Yeah, I don't wh- like why? Uh, why? Universal, index universal life insurance. Um, let's see. How can I say this? <laughs> say it succinctly. Yep. Uh, it's a product that I think is sold and not purchased. I think in very few small instances it may make sense in someone's overall financial plan. Uh, but here's what an index universal life insurance policy is. Um, it's a whole life policy or a universal life. I'm sorry, a universal life policy. Some insurance agents probably going to call me a <laughs> dumbass. Uh, it's a universal it's, life. It's a UL. Yes, it's a UL. It's a permanent policy. I, I, yeah, I meant, meant to say, to say and I, right? And I used Got the right interchangeably word. with whole life. Okay. Uh, so universal life. So there's flexibility in universal life, such as you can change premiums and uh, potentially death benefits and things like that, where whole life is pretty strict. But, and so you're buying a permanent policy. So it's like, okay, well, I need life insurance. And you build cash value up in the overall life insurance contract. And I think universal life policies, variable universal life, whole life policies, um, I think we're created basically to as a as a piggy bank or a savings account for some individuals that you could build a cash value that was tax favored in regards of taking distributions. So if you wanted to take money out of the policy down the road, you could um, in regards to FIFO tax treatment, first in, first out, so you can take money out, don't pay any tax, and then the remaining earnings on that you could take out as loans. Uh, so that was a feature or benefit of the overall product. And or some people wanted to build up the cash value because they wanted to die with the policy, right? Most people just wanted to rent a period of time. You know what I mean? So it's like I'm in my 20s. I, I need it till I'm 55 or 60 sure. just to cover the mortgage, maybe the kids, and and then after uh, that I may not need the life insurance, anymore. right? Yeah. yeah, because maybe the mortgage is paid off. Maybe I have enough assets, and maybe I'm retired. Maybe I get a pension. Yeah, sure. So you're looking at it's an income replacement, depending on what your goals are for the life insurance. Sure. So when people say you know buy term and invest the rest. They're saying, well, term is a very cheap policy, so you just buy the term to cover the renters and, sh- you know, just to cover a short period of time what, or a, whatever term that you need. You got right? it. 10 and years, which, 20 years, 30 years. Which is, yeah, which is a lot cheaper than a permanent policy. 
for unless you need the insurance after the thirty years. Right. Right. So and let's say if I buy a thirty-year policy, million bucks, my premium's a thousand dollars a year. Right. And then all of a sudden, thirty years later, I still need the million-dollar policy. My premium now is going to be like twenty thousand dollars a month. That's right. I'm a smoker. <laughs> I've, I've got right. all kinds I'm, of issues. I'm older and everything else. So or just being underwritten is going to be very very difficult. So if I want to die with a policy. So that's where a permanent policy comes into play. So it's like, okay, well, I want to die with this thing because I want to leave a legacy to my kids and grandkids. Or I have a special needs child, so if I die, that child still needs some cash. I have XYZ goal that I want to make sure that life insurance goes to whatever proceeds, right? So that's a need for a permanent policy. So then, are you well? Sure. What, what, what the hell? You, know, you can do that. You can buy a whole life, variable life, or just the standard universal life. Universal life is going to give you a fixed rate, and IUL ties to an index. right? So it's like, well, I want to tie to the S&P 500, Russell 2000, things like that. Or I could get a little bit higher expected rate of return than maybe just a fixed yeah, that, guaranteed I mean, rate. On the surface, that seems a lot better than a fixed rate. Right. That's the only reason why I would buy that policy, if I needed to die with it. But what he's what G's asking us is that well, suggesting universal life for an income play, you know, or an, an investment. Insure your income in the future. Well, first of all, insurance is not an investment. It's insurance. It's illegal to say <laughs> insurance is an investment. Right. First of all. Um, but if you're getting a guaranteed, if there's some sort of guaranteed income writer. Well, now that's uh, what he's saying here is that you're, there's no guaranteed income rider in a universal life insurance policy. This is life insurance, not an annuity. Okay. Right? So you're building up cash value with inside the life insurance. So he's funding this thing and he's building up more cash value instead of just saying, hey, I want a paid up policy. I want to build up all this cash inside this life insurance policy and use that as income. Start taking distributions from the cash value once I reach a certain age. Yeah, and on paper, that sounds appealing because it's tax-free. Tax-free, right. Yeah. What's, but, the, what's the problem with that? Well, no, I mean, then you just – but there's a cost to it. You have a cost of insurance. Right. So what's your cost of insurance? Well, why don't you just go with a, a Roth IRA? There's right. no cost of insurance there. Then for sure it's tax-free. <laughs> yeah. Okay, one of the problems with these is if you take too much out, then the policy can lapse, and then it's all of a sudden taxable. Right, right. So I, what they call these things is like super Roths, you know, hey, you could take penalty-free distributions early and everything else. I would map that thing up if you really want to look at a tax-free vehicle. Um, a Roth IRA is going to be, I don't know, 100 times better. And I know some of you are saying, well, how about if I, I don't qualify for a Roth IRA? Baloney, you don't. You, you, you can convert money into a Roth. It's, you pay taxes on it, but it's the same effect of putting after-tax dollars into a life insurance contract. That you already pay taxes right. on. Right. It's yeah. the same, same. Right. So, um, so, gee, I don't know if you can tell or not, if you, if you need the life insurance because you want to die with it, then, then by all means. But if you're using this as some sort of you know, investment gimmick to create income tax-free in retirement, I'm not a fan at all. Yeah, and I would say this: the the, the folks that I see that that need a long-term, uh, a permanent life insurance policy, couple reasons. One one is if they have such a big estate, for example, that their estate is going to have to pay estate taxes, and they have illiquid assets. Maybe they got big real estate properties, or they got a business, a farm. Yeah, something like that. And all of a sudden, if they die, and the the farm is worth fifty million or whatever the number is, doesn't really matter. Then all of a sudden, there's this big 
estate tax due and there's no way to pay it. So that's a reason to have it. That's a common reason. There you have to set up an irrevocable life insurance trust and all that kind of stuff. A second reason that I've seen is in, in some cases, uh, parents have felt like, well, this this is a, maybe a good way to, to get money to the kids tax-free. Absolutely. Yeah, that would be another reason. Yeah. If So that's the play. If you want to pass wealth to the next generation or any generation after you die, yeah, then a permanent policy is by far, that's leverage. Right. Right? Because you're putting in premiums of, let's say, I don't know, $10,000 a year for a couple million dollar policy. And if you die prematurely, you know, your IRR on that is huge on the death benefit. That's right. So you're basically almost guaranteeing them a certain benefit, right, even if you pass away early. Right. And it goes to the heirs 100% tax-free. So if it's an estate planning play, sure. If it's you know for estate taxes, or if you there's you know pension protection, you you screwed up. My pension is only a single life, and I got married, and all of a sudden, if I die, my wife or husband's not going to have any retirement income because of the pensions and sole income. Yeah, you probably need to get a permanent policy there. So there's multiple reasons for a permanent policy, but to jam it up with a bunch of after-tax dollars into a, a, a theoretically BS index, which is not an index, it's just a mirror of an index or basically buying call options on whatever index that you choose, um, it's, it, I, I'm not a big fan. I just don't think it's it's positioned appropriately, and I think it's sold like, here, you can get stock market-like returns with no downside risk and blah, 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 and all this other stuff inside this universal life insurance policy. Then they're going to show you an illustration that has a crazy internal rate of return that probably will never happen. The commissions on it are quite large, so there's, there's a lot more negatives than positives. But if it is, I think for all the reasons that Al stated and I stated, um, that you're using it for the death benefit, then yes. If you're using it for any other reasons, I think there's a lot cheaper, better, more efficient alternatives to create income in retirement. Wow, you got kind of fired up on that. And G actually has a second question. Yeah, we'll we'll get get to you, G. Hi, Joe. She really likes you because her questions are addressed to you. How do you know it's a girl? How do you know it's a girl? Oh, well, I'm just, good good point. I don't know. (laughs) It's G. <laughs> like, what up, G? That gangster. <laughs> so yeah, well, Very she's true. yeah, she's really. Uh... <laughs> I, I say that because she's writing to you. Oh, who's single? <laughs> got it, got it, got it. Um, all right, so G, yes, I am single, and I, I, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, hi, Joe. It seems nobody can give me a straight answer. Is it better to buy ETFs or mutual funds in your IRA? Is one more efficient and cheaper over the other? Also, as far as Vanguard goes, both their mutual funds and ETFs have exact same cost and track same index. So why even bother with ETFs? I don't really care if mutual funds have a $3,000 minimum. What wouldn't be my deciding factor? That that wouldn't be my deciding. I'm sorry, G. Uh, that wouldn't be my deciding factor. My only concern is one overall cost in the long run, two tax efficiency. Is there? If e- there even is this concern. I'm sorry. I'm kind of. I'm kidding, <laughs> We're just trying to help you here, Jeff. Flustered here. If there is even this concern, thanks. Okay, G. I got the straight answer for you, brother. Or or gal. Or, or sister. Gal, or yeah. sister. Yeah. Right. <laughs> or G gangsta. G- <laughs> Yes. Um, What's your answer? The, the the answer is this. It depends. It sounds like G is a long term investor, right? Right. The, 
I'm not going to get too super technical, but I think this is uh, an answer would suffice. Okay. Uh, index fund is sold at net asset value, NAV. And so if I purchase a mutual fund during the trading hour, right, I get the market close price. If I want to buy an ETF, it trades like a stock. So I can purchase the ETF while the market is open at whatever price that I see, and it has a bid-ask spread. So there's going to be, you know, so there's just minute kind of differences here. So if I'm a long-term investor, does an ETF or does a mutual fund make any difference at all? In my opinion, no, as long as the ETF is large enough, right? If you're doing some obscure, small ETF that's trying to track a certain type of, you know, index, then I probably would go with a mutual fund um, because you're they're just trying to mirror that index as much as possible, and you're going to get the index minus whatever cost it is for them to package it. So, in regards to Vanguard, it doesn't make a difference unless you're trying to trade it. You know, people buy ETFs to trade. That's why, you know, big money managers will put, you know, options in, you know, day trade the the, the damn things. Yeah, I I agree with that. I think that is the principal difference is that ETFs. They have fluctuating prices during the market hours, and the um, the mutual funds do not, and index funds do not. In other words, if you if you buy into a mutual fund or index fund at any time during the trading day, you'll get the price at the close, right? Or if you sell any time during the trading day, you get the price at the close. Whereas an ETF, it's it's up to date, just like a stock. And so I totally agree. If you're a long-term investor, it doesn't matter at all. And and certainly from a tax efficiency in an IRA does not matter at all either. Right. Even if it were a non-qualified non-retirement account, it really doesn't matter because they're basically doing the same things. They're long-term investments trying to mirror um, an index. Yep. So, but you also do bring up a good point: is some uh, ETFs are newer. So they don't have a lot of assets in them, and there could be subject to bigger swings. That's one of the things that we look at uh, for our clients uh, in terms of investments. Is, is if an ETF does not have enough assets in it, we're we're not gonna we're not gonna have that as a as a, something in our client's portfolio, just because we may have multiple clients and it may it may cause a market swing. And and you could my dad even he, and he showed me this one time. He bought into a, sh- a few shares of stock, and he showed me. Because he, it was at a certain price, and he said, "I'll buy it if it's at this price." And the next day, it, it was down by that difference. In other words, he he changed the he, market. He was, he was a market. He mover. was a market maker. And, and the same thing with ETFs. If if you're buying and selling enough shares, you can actually change the market. But I think more importantly than that, it's looking at if it's a small. Let's say you want to buy an index that has two thousand stocks in it, right? Well, if it's a small fund. Um, ETF, and you won't know. Uh, so you have to do some due diligence sure. to kind of take a look at how much assets are in it. They're just trying to mirror it, so they're not going to own all of those. They're going to leverage the larger ones that, that kind of move yeah. the overall index. So, uh, But ETFs and index funds are awesome investments. I, I don't think it really makes a difference. If you're with Vanguard, you know who cares? Learn how to grow your investments in all market conditions, how to avoid poor investment decisions, and how to protect yourself from risk. 
Click the link in the description of today's episode in your podcast app to download eight timeless principles of investing. It's a free white paper right there in the show notes just before the transcript of today's episode. These tips will help you feel confident in your portfolio, even when markets are volatile. Click the link in the description in your podcast app to go to the show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com and download the eight timeless principles of investing white paper. While you're at yourmoneyyourwealth.com, you can also scroll down, click Ask Joe and Al on air and send in your money question as a voice message or an email. All right. We got Tim. He writes in. Uh, he goes, hey, I listened to your podcast recently in which you both discussed tax penalties in tax form 2210. I mean, I, I remember that just like it was yesterday. <laughs> I do too. Tax form 2210. So Tim, he's planning on doing a partial Roth conversion from my traditional IRA uh, since withdrawal option rules are being changed in the TSP. I want to convert only enough to stay in the 24% tax bracket. This conversion is near the end of the year. He's going to do it in September and was not anticipated. So my current tax withholdings do not account for the added income jump and will result in an underpayment of taxes and possibly result in a tax penalty for not paying quarterly taxes. If when I convert and at the same time check the box for the TSP to withhold 24% taxes, will that avoid any tax penalties for not paying quarterly over the year, or do I still need to do that form 2210? All right, so that's kind of a mouthful. Uh, so what he's trying to do, Al, uh, right, he's going to do a Roth conversion. That's taking money from a standard retirement account that was pre-tax, gross tax deferred, will be taxable coming out as ordinary income rates. He's looking at the tax rates and saying, you know what, 24% seems pretty cheap. Right. So maybe I convert and stay in that 24% tax bracket. When you do a conversion, it adds income. Yeah, and you and which could be subject to penalties, but not always. So let me explain. First of all, as long as your current year withholdings equals last year's tax, then you are not penalized, even if you end up owing taxes at year end. With one caveat, if your income is $150,000 or more in the prior year, it needs to be 110%. So just to do a little example, so if you're if you're with, if your taxes last year were twenty thousand, let's just say, and your income is under twenty hundred fifty thousand for last year, you just have to have twenty thousand withheld this year, and and you're good, even though you may owe a large amount on April fifteenth. So with Tim's case, um, he's got a TSP, so I imagine that his income is probably not hugely um, volatile. Right, right, that's what I'm guessing. The, too. Uh, uh, through a savings plan, he's a, maybe a government worker, sure, something like that. Yeah, that that would be a good assumption. I, I think the other thing you look at is so if that doesn't work, then you look and make sure that you have enough withholding to cover ninety percent of this year's tax, and and if you do that, then there's no penalty. Now, in this particular case, my guess is it's a large enough dollar amount that that there's there's just not enough withholding and maybe Tim doesn't qualify for last year I, I don't know so is that 150,000 is that a modified adjusted gross income number or is that total yes. income that's it's it's modified adjusted gross income so let's say Tim does a conversion uh, hypothetically $50,000 to push him over that 150 yeah right so that means but, so that, but that's for that's for next year though so in other words, you go, you look at last year's income. If last year's income was more than 150, now you got to do 110 percent of last year's tax for withholding. So the 150 doesn't really apply until the following year. 
All right, so all he needs to do is that he has to take a look at what he withheld in 2017 or what he paid in tax for once yeah, uh, for tw- 20, tw- or 2018. 2018. Yes. And making sure that he's in um, has, has enough withholding to cover that. Cover the same he, whether same it's 100% or 110% depending upon his income level. Now, let's say that's not true. And let's say that he's got to make um, uh, estimated payments. So and, and so you can either have more withholding from his TSP, which would not be my first recommendation because now you're paying taxes on taxes. In other words, you're withdrawing money from your TSP to pay taxes, which is going to cause taxes, right? So that's not the first choice. The first choice is to pay the tax with with non-qualified or non-retirement money. But the the way that you do that simply to avoid penalty, if you don't fall under these other rules, is you you file Form 2210. I think it's on page four. It's the annualization method. And you just show that your, your Roth conversion was in September right? And September means that you won't have to make an estimated payment until the fourth quarter, right? Which would actually be January 15th. So what you do on that form is you show your income at three months, at five months, and at eight months. And September is in the ninth month. So that would actually then they'd be for the fourth quarter. And if you fill out that form accurately, then you're not penalized for make, having a, a spike in income right at year end. Yeah. Uh, I want to piggyback too on withholding Money from for conversions. Yes. Um, so, Tim, a couple of things. Yeah, we're not big fans of withholding dollars. So if you're going to do a conversion from your IRA to a Roth IRA or your TSP to the Roth TSP, do not with, uh, try not to withhold. If you're under 59 and a half and you do this, you're going to be subject to a 10% penalty because that withholding is not it, – it's um, – What's the word I'm looking for? It, it doesn't qualify. It's a premature distribution. Yeah, it's you know, so it's 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 a non-qualified distribution. It's going to be subject to a ten percent penalty. Uh, the conversion itself is is classified as a rollover. Correct. But the withholdings of taxes is disallowed in in, in regards to penalty-free uh, distribution. So not only on that withholding, do you pay tax on the withholding, but you, but you may pay a penalty. And and if you happen to live in California, you pay another penalty in California as well. So you're paying tax. So you're getting money out of a retirement account. And paying tax on those dollars to pay a tax, right. and then a penalty to boot if you're under fifty nine and a half, don't do it. It, it. it doesn't make any sense. The numbers won't jive. So I don't care what bracket you're in. It's just it, the, don't do the conversion if you're if that's the only way to come up with the additional dollars. Right, right. But that's but anyway, that's the, the answer to your question. Is you basically look and see if you qualify uh, under either hundred percent of last year's tax for withholding. Or ninety percent withholding for this year's tax, then you're not. You're, there's no penalty, even though you owe. Or uh, if, uh, in this case, you don't qualify under either one of those, then you just file this form twenty two ten. You do the annualization method to show that the Roth conversion came in towards the end of the year, and you'll still be fine. John from Riverside, California. My wife and I are in our late fifties. Our net worth is over a million, including our house, cars, and my retirement account. From Trader Joe's, 18 years, over 700000 bucks. Uh, we both teach. Uh, her 30 years and I have been teaching 14. She will retire in five years. Should we form a trust? We have three grown kids and a grandson. Also, what is the best short-term retirement plan? Retiring in 10 years, combining income, over two hundred thousand a year, mortgage done in seven years, two thousand a month. I'm kind of confused because he says that his wife is retiring in five years, and then he says, "What's the best short-term retirement plan for retiring in ten years?" 
I thought he worked at Trader Joe's. Yeah, well, he did. Now I think he's a teacher. Unless he still does some of both. He's got seven hundy in a retirement plan at Trader Joe's? That's very good. From 18 years worth. So he was cramming it in there. Yeah, but still, that's good. But not, now he's a teacher. Yep. He's been teaching 14. She's been teaching 30. All right. He's probably going to want to teach another six years for a pension, I'm guessing. Like, ten, sure. year, ten year mark. All right. Uh, should we form a trust? Yeah, we'll start there. That's that's easy enough. The reason why you form a trust is to help distribute your assets more efficiently when you pass away. It's avoid and, probate. And avoid right? probate, right? So to the extent that you have assets outside of retirement accounts, which you do, then the trust, with the trust, the assets get distributed by the trust by the successor trustee in accordance with the trust. You don't have to go to court. If there's just a will, then your executor has to go to court and say, here's the will. I need, you know, we need to get court approval on this. That's, that's the principal difference. Yeah. So it sounds like the bulk of the wealth is in the Trader Joe's uh, retirement plan. It does. It, it says net worth is over oh, a million. Over. So, so that it could, could be I don't 10 know. million. It could. Sure. Yeah. But the more assets that you have in outside of retirement, the more likely you are going to want to have a trust. So the house, right? Um, the house is what you would want to name in the trust. Yes, the house and then any other accounts that are outside of your retirement account. Okay. So, yeah, if you want to avoid pro, There's other ways to avoid probate, there too. Are. Yeah, you can, you can set up uh, transfer on death. TOD. TOD on, on investment accounts, even now on real estate in right. California. Yep. So he lives in Riverside, so... Um, it depends. It's, it's like, well, how elaborate? How? And then I think too, with a trust versus maybe a TOD, is that okay? You have kids and a grandchild. Maybe you want to say, I don't want to give. I don't want to distribute any part of the trust until someone turns age forty, and then forty-five, and There's then more uh, control, right? Yeah, you have a yeah. lot more control there. Sure. Uh, with a will, uh, we'll just distribute to the heirs. Um, yeah, immediately. Your passing. Right. Uh huh. Yep. Yep. Good point. All right. Second question: uh, What's the best short-term retirement plan? I don't know what the hell a short-term retirement plan is. <laughs> well, as usual, we need a little bit more money. I'm, I'm more information. <laughs> yes, that too. I, I meant information. What I a said slip. money. That was a slip. So anyway, I would. So how you go about this, John? Is is you take a look at your spending. But but let's, yeah, combined income of over two hundred thousand dollars a year. Yeah. So man, they're banking. Well, well, we don't know. Maybe they're spending. No, I'm just saying they're making a lot of money. They're making a lot of money. But the what the formula is simply this. You look at your spending or what you want to spend in retirement, and then you subtract out your fixed income. Your pension. Which is pensions and Social Security. And then you get a net number, which is a shortfall. And then you divide that shortfall into your liquid assets. In this case, maybe $700,000. And if you're retiring... Uh, in your let's see, late fifty for another five years. Maybe you're going to be in your early sixties. You know, somewhere around. You want to make sure that that number is around four percent, maybe three and a half percent, and then that would be acceptable. Yeah. So. And 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 if and if not, if the if that distribution rate's too high, like let's say you get six percent, it means. Oh, well, we're not quite there, so we're going to have to make some changes. We either need to spend less, or we need to work longer, or we need to downsize our home, or any number of things. Yeah, if you want, um, I guess, more information there, John, just write us back. Get us a little bit more clarification of, of what you mean. you got 700000 bucks. You're making $200,000 a year. You know, so if you're making $200,000 a year, and let's say you're spending um, – I don't know what taxes on that. Let's say one hundred twenty-five thousand bucks, and that was your sole 
um, you know, you had no Social Security or pensions, you would need three million bucks. Right. Right. You have seven hundred, so you still have a, a, a long way to go here. Uh, but your teachers, so you'll have Kel Sturs. Um, you worked at Trader Joe's, so you could have um, a little bit of Social Security. So. Yep. Some of us understand things better when we can see it in print rather than hearing two fellas debate the topic. So if you fall into that category, Big L has a formula that can help you determine whether or not you're on track for retirement. Get a copy of Big Al's Quick Retirement Calculation Guide in the show notes for today's episode at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. You don't have to input any of your financial data. It's just a one sheet that lays out exactly how to calculate your retirement progress. Simple way to access it. Just click the link in the description of today's episode in your podcast app, and you will find it within the transcript in the show notes. Look for Big Al's Quick Retirement Calculator. Now let's switch gears. Joe recently went to visit family in Minnesota. So while he was gone, Big Al Clopine CPA and Brian Perry CFP CFA took over answering listener questions. So the first one up is from one of my favorite listeners because she said that she likes it when Andy asks questions. (laughs) So she's getting a whole bunch of that. Yeah, she is. That's all we're doing today. This is from Judy in San Diego. She says, if a recession is coming... Should I take out a reverse mortgage HELOC before it hits to protect investments? House is paid off. What are the pros and cons? That's a that's a great question, Judy, and, and actually rather astute. So there there's a very smart individual in our industry named by the name of Wade Fow, PhD, who's done some stu- all kinds of studies on safe withdrawal rates, and and he actually has looked into reverse mortgages, not because he wants to sell them, just as are there reasons to have them other than the obvious, which is you have no other, no other choice, right? And and he's come up with several reasons that, that might make sense to get a reverse mortgage, and your exact situation is one of them, which is this. If a recession is coming, let's say it comes, and let's just say your investments are temporarily down, you may not want to be pulling from your investments at the time where, where the stock market's lower, and a reverse mortgage with a, with a HELOC home equity loan component, meaning you can draw on it as you need to, you might be able to draw from the HELOC during those periods of time when you don't want to draw from your portfolio and let your portfolio recover. Yeah, I, I love the idea, right? I mean, the idea of not having to sell securities if they've fallen in value um, in or out of a recession, right? I mean, stocks could fall even without a recession, but the idea of not having to sell in a down market if you have the ability to tap some other income sources, fantastic. Um, and, and I think it's something that a few years back, right, the reverse mortgage area was kind of the Wild West, and it's cleaned up some. And in a lot of areas of the country, house prices have appreciated to the point where people have enough equity that it's an important consideration when it comes to their retirement planning, what and, to do with that equity. And I will say, as far as the cons go, uh, it, it as you alluded to, Brian, there it used to be a little bit easier, or, or I guess it, the banks had <laughs> a little bit more power in terms of what they could and couldn't do. And, and sometimes we found one spouse, surviving spouse, was kicked out of the home for a, a variety of reasons. Also, I will say that some of these loans have rather high costs, so that would be a con. But it's uh, the concept is good, and, and yeah, I support that. You know, the one thing I would say is um, there's it says reverse mortgage HELOC. I mean, there's a reverse mortgage, and then there's like a home equity line, and those are two different things. And so maybe the reverse mortgage might be a little bit more of a significant step. Um, maybe you just open up a line of credit against the house and then tap it if you need it, and, and that may not involve as many costs. You, you can do that, although during the Great Recession, my uh, home equity loan got, got shut down yeah. like, like a lot of people. And so that kind of blows up that plan, it right? It kind of it does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, the, what do they say about the bank? It'll lend you money exactly until yeah. the time you need it. Yeah. And the, and the thing about the reverse mortgage, in some cases, you might want to take a lump sum, but you can also set up a line of credit right in the reverse mortgage, and I think that's what she's getting at. 
Mike in Los Angeles. He says, hey, Big Al, Joe, and Andy. And Brian. <laughs> Where's the love? <laughs> I like how he says me my name first. Yeah, right. Uh, I've been listening to the podcast for over a year, and I really enjoy it. Thanks for the great laugh out loud content. Hey, thank you, Mike. That's awesome. I've heard you guys talk a lot about Roth conversions, but one thing I don't hear about Roth conversions is how it impacts married taxpayers. My wife has a traditional IRA that was rolled from an old 401k account. She has a Roth as well. I have a Roth IRA only, but no other IRAs. I have a couple of 401ks. My question is whether the pro rata rules apply to each taxpayer separately, or if we have to look at the combined slash married filing joint IRAs that we each have. So I only have 401ks, and I want to create a non-deductible IRA and then convert it each year. My understanding, based on limited info I found on the subject, is that I would not have to take my wife's IRA into account when doing the conversion, and the pro rata rule would would have no effect on me since I only have a Roth. Does that sound right? Mike, uh, you are correct. <laughs> the so, end. <laughs> okay, next. <laughs> now, let me, let, me, uh, let me go on. When you're talking about doing Roth conversions, you only look at yours to figure out what sort of taxation you're going to have to have to come up with. So, so the pro rata rule, let's talk about that. And so when you do a Roth conversion, let's, let's just say, when you do a conversion, then what happens is, let's say you have $100,000 in an IRA, and you have $5,000 of, uh, of, of basis, in other words, where you did not get a tax deduction. $95,000 was tax deduction, or maybe it was a rollover from a 401k. $5,000 was, let's say, a non-deductible Roth contribution. And so when you do the conversion, that ratio is 95% to 100%. So 95% of the Roth conversion is taxable, 5% is tax-free. Now, if you don't have uh, any other IRA, and 401k doesn't count in this computation, Roth IRA doesn't count in this computation, then you can do a non-deductible IRA contribution. And then you can turn right around and do a Roth conversion. If your income is high enough where you don't get a tax deduction, which I'm assuming is your case because you brought up the question, and that would be for a married couple over $203,000 of income, then that's called a backdoor Roth. You can do a backdoor Roth. There's no issue. Now, for your wife, that's a completely different thing because she has money in an IRA that was a rollover from a 401k. So... In that particular case, she would have to do the pro rata rule, but the the pro rata rule is on an individual basis based upon IRAs. The income limitation of two hundred three thousand, which is the most that you can make, uh, or actually when you make over that, you can no longer do a Roth contribution. That's a joint income, so that's where it's joint versus individual. Yeah, and then I guess the one option open to uh, Mike's wife, if she has an active four hundred one k plan, would be to roll the IRA back into a new four hundred one k plan then she wouldn't have IRAs and wouldn't have to worry about pro rata. Now, on the other hand, let's say your income, if you're a married couple and your income is below 193000 that's the beginning of the phase-out period, you can actually do a Roth contribution directly, so you don't really have to worry about this backdoor Roth provision, which is really what he's asking. You know, and speaking of backdoor Roths, there was a bonus part of his question, too, where he asks about mega backdoor Roths through a 401k. And you know, maybe we talk about that a little bit because that's a way that really funnels some serious dollars into a Roth account. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't realize that if you have a, a, a plan, a 401k plan, that allows you to put after-tax money or post-tax money into the plan, then, of course, it will accumulate just like any other monies in the plan. But upon retirement, 
or upon termination, let's say you, you leave, uh, or if you turn 59 and a half and can do an in-service withdrawal, you can actually take those funds, those post-tax funds, and put them directly into a Roth IRA. And the plan, it's of course plan specific as to how much that you can you can put in. I've I've seen thirty thousand dollars as as a number, and so let's say you put in your nineteen thousand dollars, which is the max you can put into the four hundred one k on a pre tax basis. And if you're over fifty, it's twenty five thousand dollars. But maybe you put in another thirty thousand dollars post tax. If you happen to be at, at, at age 59 and a half, you can actually uh, pretty much immediately then put that money right into a Roth IRA directly. And the reason that you'd want to do that, obviously, is, is, is it's, it's kind of a sneaky way to do a big Roth contribution, because otherwise you're limited to $6,000 or, or $7,000 per year if you're over 50. Yeah, and if you're using your Roth 401k, theoretically, you could, and you're over 50, you could be putting $55,000 a year directly into the Roth 401k at that point, right? Yeah, absolutely. And and I would say, honestly, this works better or best for those that are closer to retirement than younger. Because if you're younger and doing this and not planning on leaving your job, then this post-tax money is going to accumulate and all the growth in that will still be taxable. So there's there's less benefit than, let's, just, let's say you're 60 years old and you do this. If you have that opportunity in your 401k, it's kind of a no-brainer at that point to do it. Or if you know you're going to quit. <laughs> because after, when you leave your job, you can then roll the post-tax money into an IRA at any age uh, and, the, and the pre-tax money into a regular IRA. So what you're saying is if you're younger and you're about to do mega backdoor Roth, don't tell your boss? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they, they might be suspicious if they listen to our show. Dave in Rochester, New York. He says, hi, guys. Love the podcast. My son recently graduated college and started his career. He'll be making good money for a new grad, around $90,000 a year. I recently recommended that he split his 401k contributions into 50% traditional 401k and 50% Roth 401k. I recommended this based on... On him on giving him the most flexibility in the future as no one knows where we will be from a tax perspective. However, I'm now questioning my recommendation. Maybe I should recommend that he contribute 100% of his 401 contributions to Roth 401k in order to keep things simple and maximize the benefits of the Roth. What would you recommend to a new grad contributing to a 401k? All Roth 401k or some split between traditional and Roth? Thanks in advance for your feedback. Well, Dave, first of all, I got to say congratulations to have a grad that's starting at 90,000 a yeah, year. Yeah, really? That did not happen with my kids. <laughs> <laughs> and that did not happen with me either. Even even inflation adjusted, not even close. <laughs> so, gosh, that must be, what do you think, finance maybe? He's, he's on a good path apparently. Yeah. I was going to guess accounting. A- accounting? <laughs> yeah. That, well, that could be. Big four kind of firm. Yeah, yeah, could be, could be. Anyway, that's that's a that's a great starting salary. Uh, so I'm going to give you my thoughts, and, and Brian, you can chime in. Um, based upon that starting salary, I'm going to presume it's a great career path, and the opportunities for increases will be substantial. So given that, yeah, I would actually do 100% in a Roth 401k because probably your son's going to be in the lowest tax bracket that he'll ever be in. So the tax deduction, although nice uh, and somewhat important, is not as important now as it probably will be later. And if your son is a is or will be a disciplined saver and ends up with a lot of money in his 401k over time, 
then having the the Roth 401k component, having a lot in there, maybe kind of focusing on that more in the early years might be a better way to go. As his income increases and the tax brackets increase, then then perhaps you start switching it around. But yeah, that's what I would do. What do you think, Brian? Yeah, I agree. And, you know, even I agree for the reasons you said. And then also, uh, people get used to living on whatever they have coming in. And so right from the start, if he gets used to living on the amount of his paycheck less the Roth conversions, that'll just be what he knows. And it'll be like paying yourself first, which I think would be pretty powerful. And also, even taking taxes out of it, with that many years, I mean, he probably has, what, five decades until he'll be taking this money out? I mean, I think that the growth, even if he's in a lower tax bracket in the future, the tax-free growth will probably outweigh any tax benefits he'd get today. Yeah, and you also think about when you're when you're starting out and you're putting money into the Roth 401k and you're not going to retire till 50, 60, 70, unless you're part of the fire movement, then you retire at 34. <laughs> right. That's, that might be a little <laughs> different. But let's just say you, you're on a more traditional path. Um, then you're you're going to want to kind of stack your your uh, assets to asset classes that have higher expected growth, and that means stocks, and certain kinds of stocks like smaller company stocks and and value stocks and emerging markets tend to have better longer term performance. They're more volatile. I'm not saying go 100 percent in those, but but you want to kind of put some of those asset classes in your Roth IRA. Starting at this point, you might have 30, 40, 50 years of of growth, and uh, end up with a lot of tax free income in the future. Yeah, I would agree 100%. I mean, I'd go so far as to say that I almost would put 100% of that portfolio in emerging markets and small cap stocks. Um, I don't know if I do that indefinitely, but with five decades of growth, I'd find the highest expected return asset classes. And particularly ones that like emerging markets that haven't done well the last several years, I take advantage of that and, and pile into those now and then just kind of close my eyes and forget about it and, and wake up wealthy. Something else to consider, it, right, is when you're doing it this way, you're putting a little bit in, in each month. So it doesn't really matter how volatile it is. In fact, you kind of like volatility because you end up buying some shares cheaper. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That's a good point. I mean, we've talked a, a lot the last couple of weeks about potential bear markets and recessions and market volatility. And I think it's important to note that when you're just out of college, bear markets are the single best thing that can happen to you. And, and Warren Buffett has talked about this a lot, where the worst thing that can happen to Dave's son is for markets to go up. He should hope that they go down because he's dollar cost averaging in it at low levels. And in the long run, he'll, he'll build far, far more wealth that way. That's Brian Perry, CFP, CFA. He is the Director of Research and Executive Vice President for Pure Financial Advisors. If you didn't already know it, Pure is responsible for the Your Money, Your Wealth podcast. Brian has done a very comprehensive video guide to preparing for a bear market. You can find it in the show notes for today's episode at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. You'll learn the signs of a bear market, when a market decline becomes a bear market, and why market ups and downs are so difficult to predict. Brian explains the history of bear markets and their recovery times, and he has some key investing strategies to help your portfolio ride out times of market volatility and decline. A comprehensive guide to preparing for a bear market in the podcast episode show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. Click the link in the description of today's episode in your podcast app to access it. This is from Zach. He is a student who is from Minnesota, but he's currently going to school pursuing a master's degree in North Dakota. So he says, currently my stipend, actually I should back up. He says, first, I enjoy listening to you all on this awesome podcast and gain a lot of information to consider as I enter the full work. Yeah, support. please don't forget that line. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, out of every line in there, that's yeah. the one you yeah. It's like you skipped right over it. <laughs> well, I was, I was getting to the meat of it. <laughs> he right. says, I'm 22 and a graduate student pursuing a master's degree in North Dakota. Currently my stipend is around 20K pre-tax. After graduation 
in 2021, my expected salary range in my field will be 55 to 80K. I have three months of living expenses saved, $3,000 in a brokerage account, mostly stocks and short-term reserves, luckily getting around 8% annual returns, and about $950 in a Roth that I contribute 150 monthly in a variety of ETFs, also 150 to savings monthly, all for a goal of saving 20 to 25% of my income. Should I be focused on now increasing Roth contributions to $300 a month, since I have some emergency cash saved up, or continue to save in a savings and Roth account? Also, did you want to start there? Should we keep going? (laughs) Let's stop for a second. That's a lot right there. Let me see if I can unpack this, Zach. So, um, so you're a student. You'll be graduating, and you're, you're thinking your salary uh, will be around fifty-five to eighty thousand. Congrats! That's another great starting salary. Again, I wish I was had, did that well, but uh, I started on a thousand bucks a month. I was a late bloomer, but I got there. <laughs> I, I got there eventually. Anyway, so um, you have three months of living expenses saved. Bravo! That's fantastic. You got three thousand in a brokerage account. So that's a non-retirement account. And you're investing that, getting about 8% annual returns. That's mostly stocks. And then you've got money going into Roth and in a, a variety of ETFs and uh, also $150 going into savings monthly. That's great. And your goal is saving 20 to 25%, and that's fantastic. I, I would say this, that, uh, that you, you can look at all kinds of, of studies on how much to save. And what you, see, what you see coming up over and over again is 15 to 20%. Of course, that's over a lifetime of, of earnings. If you're part of the FIRE movement, you might want to save a lot more than that. But if you're more a traditional plan, then that would be you know, 15 to 20%. 20 to 25 is a good number. Now, the fact that you have the emergency funds, the fact that you have other funds, yeah, I would put as much as you can into a Roth IRA because that's going to grow tax-free. I mean, given that versus just savings outside of a retirement account, then, uh, yeah, why not go for that tax-free growth in the future? One caveat, though, it, it, if you've got some short-term goals, like you, you want to graduate and you eventually want to buy a home and there's a time frame there, you might want to set aside some money for that. Or maybe you want to get a really cool car when you retire. Not recommending it, but maybe you do. So that... You're setting him up for a midlife crisis already. <laughs> I know, because I went through one. <laughs> I did it with a Mustang. Oh, Wow. Convert, red convertible Mustang. That was awesome. Is there any other way to do that? No. Uh, maybe really. a Corvette. Yeah, Corvette. <laughs> Corvette. Actually, I just saw uh, uh, Mike Fennison from our firm just showed me the brand new Corvette for $60,000. Looks like a premier car, and yeah. it's red. You know, it, it looks pretty cool. Yeah. Well, well, let's hope Zach keeps saving for a few more years before he goes out and buys a new Corvette. Yeah. Um, you know, one thought I do have for Zach is the short-term reserves, and he talks about luckily getting around 8% annual returns, mostly in stocks. Um, if those are truly short-term reserves and for a rainy day or any kind of home purchase, th- that money really shouldn't be in the stock market. Um, stocks over any given period of time could easily fall. So, so that's something whether it's CDs, a money market fund, just a savings account at the bank, um, that rainy day fund really should not be in the financial markets and should be in something safe. Yeah, and, and I agree with that because, because you, you, you may need to have access to that quicker than you know. This comes from Green Yoga House. Green Yoga House, okay. In a divorce situation, how is a 401k under one spouse's name handled? Ah, good question. So uh, in a, I hope that's not you, Green Yoga House, but uh, and it's for one of your friends. But uh, yeah, what tends to happen is typically 
the assets get split up. Now, uh, we in, in California live in a community property state, so usually it's split up 50-50. There may be some separately owned assets. Maybe you inherited money and it's in a separately stated trust. And so there, there are certain cases where maybe one spouse would, would keep their own assets. But generally, anything that you have earned and saved and, and, and invested together is going to be community property, even if only one spouse was working. So it's split 50-50. But in many cases, what we see is the biggest asset is the retirement account, and it's only in one person's name. So in that particular case, when you're, you're figuring out the property split, then perhaps the 401k will be split as well. It could be 50-50. It could be something else. Maybe one spouse keeps the home and gets less of the 401k or vice versa, right? So in that particular case, then what they do, I think it's called quadro. And what That's was the it? Qualified Domestic Relations Order. That comes from the courts when you get divorced and Got they it. tell you how to, how to divvy you're, everything you're up, You're like right? this encyclopedia. It's Just, great, yeah. great to have you around. <laughs> Thank you. At any rate, so that... With that arrangement, then the um, whatever part of the 401k is going to be attributed to you gets put into your name. And importantly, that doesn't count as a distribution, correct? That's right. It doesn't count as a distribution, and, and, and I guess that's a good point as far as anything. So if you've got stocks and bonds outside of retirement, that's not considered a sale. If you have a property or rental property, that's not considered a sale. It's just a distribution. So do we have any compliments? I, we do, actually. We've got, we've got some compliments, but actually I want to tell you or, about the complaint. Or, or do we have a complaint? Jeff That's in Rancho Santa Fe said, the jokes and silly interactions take up too much time. Sorry, Jeff. Uh, he wants more serious content and less screwing around. <laughs> That's then. That's not going to happen. He thinks that the podcast should be uh, thirty minutes or less. The podcast videos are good, but the transcripts are better. And when asked, "Would you recommend this podcast on a scale of one to one hundred, Jeff gave it a big thirty-six. Thirty-six. Thirty-six out that's of hundred. So thank you for yeah. that, Jeff. Just for you, we are dispensing with the derails today. Actually, that isn't for Jeff at all. I just don't have any derails this week. Thanks to Brian Perry, CFP, CFA from Pure Financial Advisors for joining us once again to answer some of your money questions. And thank you to all of you who have sent in your questions. Your participation is what makes this podcast what it is. And we appreciate you. If your question didn't get answered this week, make sure you are subscribed to the podcast because slowly but surely we are making our way through the list and the fellas will answer your question in a future episode. Go to yourmoneyyourwealth.com, scroll down and click Ask Joe and L on air to send in yours. Your Money, Your Wealth is presented by Pure Financial Advisors. Get a no-cost, no-obligation, two-meeting financial assessment with a certified financial planner by clicking the free assessment button at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. You don't even have to be local to Southern California. They can even conduct face-to-face -face meetings with you online. Pure Financial Advisors is a registered investment advisor. This show does not intend to provide personalized investment advice through this broadcast and does not represent that the securities or services discussed are suitable for any investor. Investors are advised not to rely on any information contained in the broadcast in the process of making a full and informed investment decision. 